union town All down the line This is a union town A union town All down the line This is a union town This is President Ron Herrera and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown, a podcast that delves into the everyday issues, iconic leaders, and allies of the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders, from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement, from the desert to the sea. Today we welcome to Uniontown, Susan Minato. She is the co-president of Unite HERE Local 11, which represents more than 30,000 workers in the hospitality industry in Southern California and Arizona. Susan, along with a core group of union leaders, transformed Unite HERE Local 11 into a nationally recognized labor movement leader in training rank-and-file leadership to win union growth, social justice policy, and electoral politics. Most recently, Unite HERE played a critical role in leading the ground operation in Arizona for the 2020 election successes of President Biden, Vice President Harris, and U.S. Senator Mark Kelly, and in the 2020 Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs for Ralph Warnock and John Ossoff. Susan is a fourth-generation Japanese-American. She started her career in worker justice as a labor lawyer for the Utility Workers Union and later left law to become an organizer. Susan has worked for the local since 1993. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Ugo. Nice to hear your voices again. How you doing? Doing great. That's great. We wanted to kick off today with uh, some friendly roasting of someone you work closely with and know well, Mr. Rob Notoff. He has, <laughs> he has been... I kid you not. So for everyone out there, our policy director, Robert Notoff, for the past week or so, in front of our House of Labor delegates, in front of everyone, has been talking smack on UCLA and preaching Michigan basketball nonsense. So we'll get to this later, but I know you are a graduate of UCLA School of Law. You know, do you have anything to say to Rob? Just kick off the show. You know, basically, Rob never sleeps. We already know this because he just, you know, day, night, early morning, late, he's always around. So obviously, he's not getting enough sleep. And so he's gotten delusional. And so now he's supporting Michigan. Who who the hell cares about Michigan? If you live in L.A., you better fall in line on UCLA at minimum. So good, good luck, Rob, in your career at the LA County Fed. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I couldn't have asked better for a better start to that, and and he's gonna really enjoy hearing this when we when we launch it. <laughs> and he's so great. Okay, all in jest. Of course, we we love Rob, and uh, uh, that's why we can we can give him some friendly <laughs> friendly roast. <laughs> Uh, on top of all the amazing policy he's helped work with you all and other affiliates, right, and driving, especially amidst the, the pandemic. But thanks for being here, Susan. We wanted the world and the LA Fed and our delegates really to have a conversation with our executive vice presidents. And we also want to talk to labor leaders here in Los Angeles, of which you are one, but you're also a national 
leader in your own right, someone who's accomplished a lot. But we wanted folks to first know Susan, the coming of age Susan, right? And your upbringing, because we all aren't necessarily born into the movement. Well, some folks are, right? If parents are activists and they get engaged. And we want to hear how you came into the labor movement, beginning first with your origins in New Jersey. Well, I'm actually from a California family, both sides. Um, And so my mother's family in 1888 came over to the Bay Area and she was born in Sacramento. And then my father's family came over from Japan in probably the turn of the century. And so both came to California. My dad's family was living in LA. I only ended up in New Jersey because after the Japanese internment um, during World War II, both of my my mother and father were teenagers still, didn't know each other. And each family migrated after the internment to New Jersey because there was a farm and a frozen food factory there that was recruiting cheap Japanese labor out of the camps because the the Japanese had nowhere to go. They had lost everything. So this farm called Seabrook Farms um, and frozen food factory adjoining factory gave free tickets to any Japanese American from the camp who uh, would want to come work. They'd get a job on the farm or in the factory and they'd get set up with a company grocery account. They get set up in company housing. They'd get company credit for, you know, the basics. And so thousands of Japanese families went there. And that's why I was born there. My, my parents ended up meeting there and uh, got married, settled there in the neighboring town. And so the five of us, five kids, all grew up in New Jersey. And then we all migrated back west. So that's why, that's why New Jersey. And what age were you when you came back west? After college, I uh, went to UCLA Law School, as you said earlier. Um, so that was in, I guess, about 84. Uh, and then my parents and siblings, all except for one, all migrated west, California and Arizona. It's fascinating. I mentioned earlier about being born in, into the movement, but... It sounds like maybe you were born to your parents' lived experiences. How did them experiencing the internment camps and and being farm workers inform how they raised you? You know, my parents uh, and grandparents were, like, extremely humble. You know, they, you know, for better or for worse, they were taught you keep your head down and you just get along and you don't need to rock any boats And, you know, you just kind of have to reintegrate back into society because that was, you know, how they felt in the 40s. And then uh, we were all born primarily in the 60s. Um, And by then, you know, they were they were different. They had, you know, sort of their own lives. But I think that sort of keeping your head down experience just lived all over them. You know, they didn't they didn't migrate too far from that in a way. And then my mother, she comes from a really interesting family because they're very unusual people. (laughs) It's hard to explain exactly how they're unusual, but they're just kind of like, um, they are from a samurai family and they just, you know, have certain principles that they live by. And even though they didn't, you know, really wanna rock the boat as their parents taught them, 
they also felt like, I think internally, like they had, they were going to stand up for themselves, at least in some smaller ways. I was very influenced by my mother, uh, who was very strong, like so strong, and taught me from the beginning that, I mean, I could even hear her words today. She just passed away last year at 92. But she was... Yeah, thank you. She would say, you know what? You are just as good as everybody else. I know you and you can do anything that you want. And she told me that my whole life. And so while she was sort of still practicing this idea that, you know, you somewhat keep your head down, she was kind of like secretly passing me all these messages like, but on the other hand, you know, you don't take shit. (laughs) So it was kind of a great thing. And she was a union member. So and I walked the picket line with her at age 12. What union was that? Retail clerks. Retail clerks. She, uh, yep. She was a checker back in the days when you used to do the punch key. And she was so proud of working. She had raised us. And then by the time I got, got to about 12, she decided she was going to go to work. And she was a part-time checker at this grocery store named Pantry Pride in New Jersey. And I, I looked it up after, I, know, I remember her going on strike and I, I was telling John Grant recently how I looked it up in the newspaper, the Philadelphia Enquirer. And on a single day in the seventies, 475 grocery stores went on strike together and she was one of them. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And I'm glad she gave you that nod, right? Because the keeping your head down is not who Unite Here Local 11 is. And so I can only imagine uh, that you got that wink and nod from her uh, in the work you do and have led uh, with, co-led with your, your union. Yeah, she's, she was very influential to me. And as a woman, you know, like she didn't really, you know, the Japanese really like kind of favor the sons, or at least that's the tradition. And so that didn't really exist so much in my household. Yeah, mom was always really, really strong. Dad was a good guy and very loyal and very steady. But mom was kind of like the leader. Just the fact that, you know, her upbringing, you know, all the things that she had to, you know, endure. And then to be a woman in the 70s and walk a picket line, that says a lot about her. Uh, at yeah. 12 years old, as a young girl, what's, uh, you know, the young Susan thinking as she's walking that strike line? Did you understand, you know, you knew the issues, you knew it was about, you know, uh, your mom's uh, job, whatever it was. What was Susan thinking at that time? Well, funny story about it is that my mom... As it turns out, I did find this out years later. I said, mom, like you were on strike. Like, how did you decide to go on strike? And she says, oh, that was, I didn't have to think about it. My coworker told me we're going out tomorrow. And so I did. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so much about her, right? (laughs) And because you got to stick with your people. And then uh, she, I mean, I, the funny thing was she dragged me to the picket line. Because, I mean, she said, okay. I have one more paycheck coming now that we're on strike. And so I can't cross the picket line. So you go in the grocery store. That's, by the way, completely empty, except for the manager. (laughs) And you tell him you want my pay. You want my paycheck because I can't cross the picket line. 
So I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so I walk in and I don't think grocery stores are like this anymore, but in the corner of the grocery store, there's this like giant, there's this office, but like really high up in the store so that it can look out over the entire store. And the guy's sitting up there all alone and the store is totally empty. And so I'm kind of walking in, I don't see anybody. And all of a sudden I hear this voice what do you need? You know, and it's, you know, to me. And I say, uh, uh, my mom wants her paycheck. <laughs> and, and then he says, he says, you tell your mom that she can come in here. That doesn't count as crossing the picket line. <laughs> and then, but then he did hand me the paycheck. And I, I was like, oh, whoa, this is, he's a mean dude. <laughs> So that's kind of what I was thinking, but I was, you know, walking the line with her and, you know, I, it was a happy picket line just as most of them are. So, you know, it was, it seemed good to me. Incredible. And you came back full circle, right? Because so that was your first strike line, right? As I understand it. And, and then you graduated UCLA law school, mm -hmm. you practiced law. In fact, I recently learned through our new executive board member at the Fed, that you were staff attorney for the utility workers. What drew right. you away from practicing law into direct organizing and transitioning into Unite Here, Local 11? Well, you know, I, uh, I sort of, in my, even though I was a young person, I always was like asking myself, there's more to this. Where's the, where, there's more, there's something missing here. And so, you know, that's partly why I left the small town that I grew up in. And then, you know, I was, went to college in the South and I was like, okay, I got to go to the city, bigger city. So that's why I went to UCLA. And so I was like, I was kind of searching. And so then I went as a staff attorney though, I learned so much. I truly did learn a lot. And I was, that was when I was first exposed to Rich McCracken, you know, very well-known labor lawyer who was very, out-of-the-box thinker, uh, even though I did encounter him and the people at utility workers were very loving and very, you know, wonderful people, I wanted to, I think I wanted to be more in the mix, like a grittier kind of job that I felt like that I could feel in my, you know, the blood pumping in my veins. And so I let, I, I wanted to leave to be more, I said, okay, I, I think I'm going to be an organizer. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. <laughs> And then, and then I just got this opportunity from Miguel Contreras. Well, I should back up two, one step by saying that uh, Kent Wong and Art Takei from the UFCW 770, they heard there was a new Asian American in the labor movement. <laughs> and that was me. And so they like descended on me. And they were like, oh, okay, you know, get involved with Apollo. What was then, it was called Apple back then. Get involved with Apollo, come to these meetings. And they, you know, they were all over me. And then, uh, yeah, it was very funny. They were amazing. And uh, they were like, okay, and, you know, you, you should think about moving to a bigger union maybe because, you know, then you can have more impact. And, and I was like, oh, okay, uh, sure. And then, but I started going to these meetings that were, Miguel used to put on, Miguel Contreras used to put on, but it was like primarily Latino leaders. And so Jerry Acosta from Utility Workers used to go and he said, he used to say, Minato, come with me, come with me. So I would just go with him. 
And I remember they were Brian D'Arcy, Gil Cedillo was there, um, Polanco was there, uh, Richard Polanco. Anyway, a bunch of labor people who Miguel would have on a regular basis come to this meeting and talk about how we were going to like, you know, try to insert more Latino leadership, but, you know, progressive leadership. And so I was like, got familiar with Miguel that way. And so then, and that they used to meet at Baragans on Sunset. And I was kind of just along for the ride, honestly, but that's how I got to know Miguel. So when I started thinking about leaving utility workers and being an organizer, he goes, hey, you know what? Why don't you just come on to the political campaign through the Federation? Because they were the Federation was trying to elect Mike Wu for mayor. And so I worked with uh, Jack Ribbon from utility, I'm sorry, from Unite, from HERE. And then I met Carl Lechow and Relena and all of them that way. And so then it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to move to organizer. So I moved over that way through the political, through the Fed, really. So it was a kind of, I have a very close feeling about the LA Fed too, because in a way it was a very instrumental for me to keep, you know, getting more and more in the mix. When you say organizer, you're not talking about a lead organizer. You're not talking about an organizing coordinator. You are talking about an everyday, you know, house call grunt organizer. Are you not? I am talking about the gruntiest of the grunts. (laughs) As a matter of fact, my first assignment with HERE, they decided that they were going to really woo me. You know, they sent me to Laughlin, Nevada. (laughs) It was only about 127 degrees. Oh, boy. Well, I think Carl Lechow, who was, you know, doing the assigning back then, I think he wanted to, he just wanted to take a lawyer who, I, you know, I had a really nice office at the utility worker's office. And it was, you know, he wanted to take a lawyer who had a really big office, bigger than Carl's own office, and probably say, okay, is she for real? Or is she just going to like, you know, just, is she just moonlighting? Right. Right, right. <laughs> well, to Ron's point, and I'm glad he asked that because this, uh, this is a great opportunity to share about the leadership development model of Unite here. Could you share about what that is and and why it's so successful? Right, because you weren't exempt. You're you know co-president now, but you weren't exempt from the model. No, um, actually, what we did was we, as you guys probably know, when Marlena took over in the late '80s, and then. Uh, I started in 93 at local 11, a lot of things weren't built yet. So I sort of ended up doing a lot of the training model at local 11 based on the training model that Carl Lechow put together in the international. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to knowing a person, but not just knowing their name and where they went to school or where, you know, this kind of stuff, but really learning about them, what makes them tick. When I used to teach organizers more directly, I used to say, think of it like falling in love. You know, you have to, you have to know about them. You have to know how they think, what they feel. Is there chemistry between you and them? Is there chemistry between them and their coworkers? You really just have to understand them. And so when you ask them to do very difficult things, like go on strike like put their families on the line due to, you know, striking or whatever, that they're there. Yes means yes. Or their no means no. And show them that, you know, without insulting them, that their life can be different. They can go up. They can change. They can be better. 
it's it's a very deep understanding of the person first and then giving appropriate actions and assignments that push them up a little bit, not too far so to the point where they run away, but like commensurate with how they're feeling and you know their what they've been exposed to. So that's kind of basically it. And then it's not in a classroom, although sometimes it's in a classroom, it's in the field. And, and the reason for that is because there's nothing like a boss coming down on your ass, right? You are getting crushed mm-hmm. and that feels a certain way. And so if you don't have that exact feeling that you understand and that you are reacting to, then you're sort of like, you're too book smart. So it's like knowing them and then the exposure to the difficulty. That falls in line, you know, with my school of thought and Brother Hugo here is a recipient of, you know, what actually happens, what understanding a worker, knowing a rank and filer, how they think. With that said, along those lines, your biggest fight, biggest disappointment, where you thought that, you know, heck, we're not going to win this. What are we going to tell these workers? Because one of the things that I want to accomplish on this podcast is that there were fights that we thought we were going to lose and possibly we did lose. And it's just to to teach, you know, our younger activists, our, our younger unionists, our younger union officials that, you know, not everything is going to, you know, you're not going to win every time. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be challenges. And you're even going to challenge yourself if, if, uh, you're even equipped to, to be a, an activist and a, a union official. In Susan Monado's tenure there at HERE in Local 11, what was your toughest fight? What challenged you the most? Mm-hmm. Well, there's probably like the hardest one, and I think it was because it was such a tough company, such a big, powerful company, was Disney. That fight was an internal fight. You know, it wasn't an external fight. So meaning it wasn't to organize new members into the union. It was to get a decent contract for our Disney workers who had very low, very low standards in, in those contracts. And honestly, it took us four years. I would wake up, you know, of course, not in the, in the very beginning, you know, it was like full of, you know, full of enthusiasm and oh, so great. And, you know, like kind of taking on the challenge. And then let's just say year two and year three and then year four would just, you know, I just be like so frustrated on some level, you know, like how are we going to get out of this? And so I'd wake up every day and say, oh my God, how are we going to do this? And I just had to like push myself so hard. You know, I was inspired from the workers doing the same thing, but I had the same syndrome as the workers. Like when the hell are we going to be able to win this? And uh, so I had to like really find it in myself to, you know, change up so many things in order to try to win that. And so we did in the end do it. And then that relationship that we have with Disney because of that four-year fight today has yielded us many good things. So I think today we could fairly say between that the, the Anaheim Disney team was able to secure even the Florida contracts for them that were very, very decent. And so now that relationship has endured, but it was like literally 
trying to beat the company one mosquito bite at a time. You know, it was a very difficult company to beat. So I would say that it's the, it's the endurance, the endurance part of it. That was the hardest part of it. I grew up in Orange County and you grew up with this uh, illusion of what Disney is. And then as you grow up, uh, you realize what it isn't. And a pro worker company is definitely something that's not, and I'm not surprised uh, that that was, you know, one of your toughest fights, if not the, the toughest. Unite here has been groundbreaking amidst this pandemic in the sense that you all have continued to organize and grow, not just in terms of membership, but also in, despite the fact that, you know, the hospitality industry has and tourism industry has been uh, ravaged by COVID, right? And also electorally, you all did tremendous work in both Georgia and Arizona. Can you share about that and, and what you all, how you all approach this pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I think that because, you know, the leadership of Local 11 is very seasoned, you know, like uh, I think our newest director is like 15 years. We, uh, like I've been in the union now 28 years, Kirk Peterson, my co-president, 25 years, I think Ada, um, you know, some huge number like that over 20. And so for us, even though it was devastating and, you know, made us crazy, you know, that full of panic that, oh my God, you know, this is devastating to our industry. Overnight, we had 95% of the people laid off, but we're seasoned enough as a leadership to know that we have to take the long view. We have to, of course, be urgent and, and, and respond to a crisis, but we take the long view that the union is going to win and endure and come through this, and we're going to be part of the solution. So we, I, I'm sure most of you have heard about shock doctrine. So we decided that even though we were going to go nuts and, you know, make sure that our people could get back to work as much as possible, get their health care restored and continued even during the pandemic, keep, you know, get their seniority rights, recall, safety, all these COVID, you know, responses. We were also going to continue our program because continuing the program during this time would be fruitful. We believed that. And so I think it was correct um, that I think it was a correct assumption because as you guys know, development has continued, you know, big time in, in Los Angeles and Arizona. And so we have been able to secure some card checks during that time. We did not stop our organizing at uh, a number of hotels. Currently, we are hoping to, you know, we push those campaigns farther during the COVID period, the Terranea, La Marigot, Chateau Marmont. So we're, they're all public, so I can say them their names. Um, but they, you know, they were worked on the entire time and became part of the narrative of why it is that recall and retention needs to be passed into law because those non-union hotels are examples of what happens when, you know, certain rights are not in place. So we continued with that. Uh, we organized 900 workers in food service at, at Arizona State University during the pandemic. We uh, got recognition in May of 2020. And all of this, so we moving all of this stuff forward, you know, 
while keeping our eyes on the prize that we set out in 2017, which was that we were going to deliver for the Democrats Arizona. And we've been working in Arizona since 2006, or I have since 2006. We had our first election there for city council that we won in 2007. And so we've been building every single cycle since. And so since most of our workers were laid off anyway, we put 500 people on the street, first people out in the field to uh, in the general election. We put 500 people in the street because we know there's no substitute And I mentioned before, our training model is based on relational, you know, kind of pushing. And so we felt that for to win Arizona, we needed to be face to face with the voters. So that's why we went out. I feel personally, I feel like that's one of the best things I've ever done. We just continued that forward and then eventually picked up that same team and went to Georgia and delivered the same kind of thing. So we feel, you know. The, the workers of Local 11, despite being laid off, very poor, scared, worried, they all came with us. They, they helped to bring this home. So we had phone bankers as well, but the ground operation was super key. Huge admiration for what Local 11 has been able to com- accomplish this last year. I want to summarize it and give you credit to not only yourself individually, but, you know, to your local union. But you also created jobs through a a meals program for seniors. I'm going to say you, okay. You employed through HTA 1,100 laid-off workers. You gave them dignity and respect. You employed your own own union members. And that should be uh, inspiration to all of us. You didn't sit back. You went to Arizona. I visited you in Arizona and saw the. Mm-hmm. I, I I saw what you did. I was there when you, you know the uh, house callers were being motivated by, you know, you and your staff. The recall and retention that was all local eleven, and you know, got my fingers crossed that we can pass the that segment uh, in the state, and we're we're very very proud of you. But one last question, okay? Your parents- Hold on. Before you get to the question, I got I really want to say this because I really think that people need to understand this. I appreciate what you just said. And I really, truly do. And, you, you know, our members, yes, they deserve a lot of the credit. But I do want to say that I, that the Federation and you as a leader, Ron, I mean, you and I have talked many times and we had to talk because, you know what, we needed the help of the labor movement, the help of you and the staff at the Fed. And, you know, this serving our community program where 1,100 people went back to work, you know, who otherwise would have been flat on their butts. That is very much a program that the Federation owns, too, because the Federation's power to push a lot of the political leaders you know, to, 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 to send that money in that direction was super critical, super critical. And similarly, um, you know, the Federation did a lot of that phoning into Arizona. I, so, and, and I can't really, I really like to be very accurate in how I credit people because, you know, I think that's important in order for people to understand how things happen 
you know, things are like a very complicated organism. And so, you know, the food that the Federation gave to, you know, of course the labor movement, but our members in particular, like thousands of families stayed afloat during this time so that they could even contemplate, you know, volunteering with their union or going to Arizona or Georgia or wherever, you know? And so I really thank you, truly thank you from the bottom of our hearts. You have really been so instrumental in, in you know, us being able to do what we've done. We're a team. We're a team. <laughs> Keeping your head down again, Ron. <laughs> Weird team. You you can't see it now, Susan, but he's blushing. <laughs> well, I like to see teamsters blush. <laughs> you know, Susan, I, I, we can't let the the show wrap up with uh, one last topic, right? You begin the conversation with sharing about your family and the internment camps and one of the racist stains that we still have in this country, right? And the things we have to reckon with. And just this week, we saw a continuation of what's been going on with amidst the pandemic, an issue that existed but was exacerbated of anti-AAPI sentiments and, and hate crimes that we've seen over the last year. And just this week, white men killed several Asian women in Atlanta. As a API leader yourself, as a labor leader, as the labor movement, how do we move forward and support the efforts to stop this racism and, and these hate crimes? Yeah, it was honestly, it's so funny because, you know, in being involved in the labor movement, you feel very powerful. You know, you feel very strong, you feel creative, you feel, you know, energized and inspired. And then something like that happens. And then it's just kind of a blow to the gut because it's so arbitrary. And it's just like, oh, Asian woman, let's gun her down, you know? I'm sure it's how many of the African-Americans feel throughout the country, you know, obviously Latinos, everybody, but it does, you know, hit you right in the gut. And so it was pretty upsetting for me. I really feel like the labor movement's work. I know this, this may sound a little strange because it may sound less direct and focused, you know, on your, on your question, but making people people of color, poor people into leaders is the work we know how to do best and we should continue doing. That enabled us to flip a terrible state like Arizona. It enabled us to overcome the racism in Georgia for the Ossoff and Warnock races. And so it's building the leaders, it's building the labor movement. So I don't, you know, of course we can, you know, focus on, you know, all HR1, HR4, SB1, you know, all the things coming through the Congress, uh, which are really related to voting rights and, you know, redistricting and things like that. There's these sound indirect, but they're the direct path to the leaders that we train to be able to make a bigger difference. I think building the labor movement is my answer to your question, even though we can also write letters. We can also phone bank. We can also do things direct on anti-Asian sentiment. But what we're really talking about is the white supremacy that we really need to defeat and not let be integrated into our government anymore. It's already integrated. We need to we need to clean it out, and then we need to you know reinstitute pro labor people. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan, for that. And. We look forward to continuing to work, not just on this issue, but on this amazing partnership that we 
as a federation have with Unite Here, in addition to our other affiliates and supporting your workers of who I have a soft spot in my heart and, you know, coming from an immigrant family. And so uh, a lot of your members are like looking at my own family. Absolutely. Thank you, sister. Appreciate you. You know that. And we got a <laughs> lot of work ahead of us. And we do. I see, I see success. I see success. And we're going to have a lot of fun, too. Oh, yes. That, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susan, for getting on. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. A union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Union Town. (laughs) 